Experience the magic, comedy, and men behind Kane and Abel Talking Tricks by experiencing Kane and Abel Live. We're at the following places. The Sterling Fringe on March the 1st and 3rd. The Adelaide Fringe on March the 5th through to the 17th. April 6th, we're at the Bath Comedy Festival. May 4th, 5th, 6th and 31st, we're at the Brighton Fringe Festival. Back at the Brighton Fringe in June the 1st and the 2nd. And June the 14th, we're at the Hastings Comedy Fringe. Visit www.caneandablemagic.com forward slash tour for more. You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast with us, Kane and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice. Now today's guest is an absolute legend in the world of magic and he needs no introduction. He is one of the finest magicians. No, Abel, Abel. He needs no introduction. Well, introduction aside, Kane, I must quickly thank today's guest, Max Maven, for being so generous with his time and agreeing to this interview. And also a massive thank you to Luke Jermay for lending us his apartment as a recording studio. But people of Earth, here we go. The legend himself, Mr. Max Maven. Joining us now on Talking Tricks is Max Maven. In a minute, I'm going to ask him the first question and you'll look forward to hearing one of the most iconic voices in magic speaking and you can probably imagine when you hear it that maybe Max and I are sat in in LA or somewhere like that but we're not we're in Yorkshire rural Yorkshire so my first question must be Max what brings you to the UK well several things I've been here now for um, just under two weeks and I've had the opportunity to uh, to do a bit of traveling, a couple of performances, um, a couple of lectures. Those have been up north. Uh, but then I went down to London for the event and the session uh, in which I both participated and simply enjoyed because there was a very good lineup this year. I've been spending time with friends, notably Luke Germay, who lives somewhere mysteriously in, in, in the north area, uh, but others as well. And uh, it's been a very nice trip. It's a good way to start the new year. And um, I know you've been, as you said, performing and lecturing. Mm-hmm. Do, do you still love lecturing to magicians? What is it about that that, that makes you continue to, to have that as a large part of your work? Well, I've been lecturing since about 1995, I think was the first. So if I didn't like it, I think I would not still be doing it. I do like lecturing. Uh, first of all, to a great degree, I approach lecturing as I would approach a performance. It's simply a different type of performance, uh, and I like performing. But also, uh, the material that I choose for lectures, and I choose from a repertoire, I don't do the same lecture over and over, but uh, I try to pick material that hopefully is is good from the point of view of the people in the audience, the stuff that will fool them and then they'll be pleasantly surprised by the methods, but also that in the course of teaching it, I can address certain theoretical points, certain aspects of psychology and stagecraft that might not have been thought of before by those people. And so I I look at what I'm doing with lecturing as more than simply teaching a bunch of tricks, although that's obviously part of the content, but also trying to explore some areas that most people may not have. And so, in that sense, I find lecturing to be of value 
in, in a way beyond just, it's certainly not just a money-making exercise to go and flog lecture notes. Uh, I really enjoy lecturing and, and, and bringing new ways of thinking to people. You touched on it a little bit there, but I want to maybe dig slightly deeper. I'm sure a new killer piece of mentalism is going to be one of the answers to this. But <laughs> what are the key points then, I suppose, that, that you hope people will take away from a Max Maven lecture? Well, I mean, obviously, and I, I say this usually at the start of my lecture, I, I say to the audience, I, I, I hope you'll see something you like and something that you might want to try. Uh, and if they do, that's great. But I also say, uh, even if nothing in the, in the lecture appeals to you in the way of saying, I'm going to try that, I'm going to put that into my, my, my future shows, uh, that at least they'll come away saying, some of the ideas in that routine I can apply. I never thought about this particular aspect of how to construct a routine or how to make a routine engaging, how to lure an audience into being involved with uh, a premise which in many cases might ordinarily be rather dry, but, but instead to get the audience involved. So, so that's what I'm going for based on what people say after a lecture that uh, there are people who say, I'm going to start trying that. I'm going to use that routine or I have a place for that idea. But again, even if they wind up doing none of the material themselves, I'm hoping that the larger lessons have some value. Do you think that magicians are often guilty of maybe overlooking working on, on stagecraft and techniques and the use of narrative in, in their magic? Yes, I would agree with that completely. Magicians, and I say this from personal experience because I grew up in magic. I mean, I didn't instantly jump into magic and know everything. Obviously, I don't know everything to this day. But I know a lot more now than I did when I was eight years old. I mean, I started magic when I was seven or eight and went up through studying magic, through reading the classic textbooks and attending lectures and conventions and and, and growing and then ultimately becoming a professional performer. And so I know from my own experience that at the first interaction with magic, most magicians don't know anything about issues of stagecraft and psychology and theory, or magic history for that matter. They're really interested in what's the new trick, what's the new gimmick, what's the new technique that, that will amaze my, my friends. I mean, that's the, the starting point for most magicians. Now, uh, some never grow past that, but the ones who become really good magicians or mentalists do get past that into something more, something that involves uh, not only craft, but art. And, and they, uh, in, in order to make art out of the vehicle of magic, it requires finding out about a lot of things beyond the gimmick or the, you know, the, the sleight of hand moment or whatever. And we can all learn more. I mean, never stops. I mean, certainly when I started learning magic, and I think all magicians are the same, that the tricks are the first things you focus on. As soon as, as the older that my brother and I have got, we've tried to make our routines we do as personal as possible. Mm -hmm. Our grandfather was a magician. And a lot of our routines are based around things he told us to do, and then sometimes things he told us not to do. Um, and we find that makes a good story and a good plot for the magic we do. Do you feel that for it to be a really good plot to a magic trick, does it need to be autobiographical or can it be just a very good story behind it? Well, the Italian film director Federico Fellini 
once said, all art is autobiographical. He said, the pearl is the autobiography of the oyster. And I think to some degree that's true, but that doesn't mean that, that all good performing is literally autobiographical. Uh, if so, then we would never have the plays of Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare was not personally uh, the Prince of Denmark, was he? Obviously, artists of various types, performing and otherwise, find stories that are outside of their own personal histories. But I think when the stories are compelling uh, to audiences, it is because the audiences will recognize something about themselves in that story, whether it's a narrative or just a, an underlying premise. Similarly, the performer has found something within him or herself that is addressed by that premise. So there may be no overt autobiography in the process, but it's underneath the process. There's always some autobiographical point. Otherwise, it sort of becomes meaningless. And when you're scripting a new routine, would you often look within to create that script or would you look around for inspirations? I know you're a very well-read man. I know you've got a lot of interest outside magic. Do you often go to those places? Is it other bits of art that inspire you and old tales? Is that where you'd go or do you go within or a bit of both? Well, I, I would say it's a mixture of, of, of both and more. I wish I could tell you there's a really simple formula that you do this and then this and then this and suddenly you have a creative result. If such a formula exists, it has eluded me over these many years. I am always uh, open to inspiration. I don't necessarily go to a film or read a book uh, or see an art installation with the initial purpose of saying, what can I pull from this to use in my own work, but I'm open to it, I'm aware of it, and if I have an experience with someone else's work, if I read a book and say, that really affected me more than most novels, or that painting somehow captured something that, that I responded to in a way that I don't usually do, or that movie has stayed with me far longer than most, obviously the next question is, okay, why? And by asking that simple question, I've been able to learn a great deal and be inspired by many artworks and various media by other people. At the same time, there are things within my own life that I, I want to address, I want to explore. And my assumption is that the things that interest me and that I wish to explore uh, probably are also of interest to the audience. And so we sort of meet in the middle of that. And I want to unpackage your, your career and your life and, and some of the amazing things you've done um, so far in it. But before then, just on that point of inspirations, I, I wonder how have the things that inspire you changed and evolved over the course of the year? Or, or did you get to this kind of point where everything <laughs> could be an inspiration relatively early in your career or did it take a while for, for that to come to you? Well, I would say unquestionably there are things that I understand now that I didn't particularly understand when I was a callow youth. You know, as we grow as human beings and our experience widens and, and our uh, amount of information that we have taken in grows just 
as it naturally does, there are things that we understand in in fuller ways or just simply different ways than we did the first time around. There are certain books within, specifically within the field of magic and mentalism, certain publications that I've read multiple times. I'll give you one obvious example for me is The Jinx, Hanneman's publication that ran in the uh, 1930s into the beginning of the 40s. And those 151 issues, which are slender, I mean, the, the individual issues are not long, but put together, they form a three-volume set. They usually have been released in more recent years as in that format. So it's not a massive read, but it's also not a pamphlet. And I've read my way through The Jinx multiple times. I can't tell you how many. And sometimes I just sort of dip into it and up into a random page and say, okay, maybe there's something here that I didn't that didn't really jump out at me first. And, and now if I look at it again, I'll understand it differently. I'll understand it more deeply. So there have been times that I've genuinely read, you know, from the first page all the way through on multiple occasions. But there are other times that I'll just dip into, stumble upon something that, and I say, ah, that didn't make sense to me when I was 16. But, but it does now. I, I can understand it more from the perspective not only of being older, but from having been performing professionally for, for decades and for, for having a better understanding of the world in general. So, so uh, some of these things, I think, are worth going back to repeatedly. The great thing I find about magic books is they are episodic and you can just flip open a page and there's a trick and you read that and, and move on. I wonder, jinx aside then, if I was starting a career in mentalism, wanting to improve my mentalism mm -hmm. or just looking for some really good inspiration, what would be a few key textbooks then that you would recommend the listener to attack first? Well, for me, the jinx stands above all. Everything you need to know to become a good mentalist is in the pages of the jinx. If you've never read it, some of the ideas may seem out of date. If you think that, it's mostly cosmetic. The actual meat, the actual thinking is just as valid today as, as it was the better part of a century ago. A lot of people would put Corinda's 13 steps on the same level. And while I think that that work is, is wonderful, it contains some, some absolute gems, and I was fortunate enough to know Tony Corinda, and, and so I'm very fond of the book for, for that reason as well. I don't think you need Corinda in the same foundational way that you need the Jinx, which is by no means saying don't read the 13 steps. They are wonderful. And again, those came out in the 1950s. And as much as times have changed and, and some of the details of, of how we function with smartphones and computers and, and, you know, our lives are different than they were 50 years ago. But the, the material is still very substantial and, and still works, and there is still really good thinking in, in, in Corinda. So do not overlook Corinda. I just don't... To me, the jinx kind of stands alone. But, but coming at maybe the next level, I would, I would certainly put Corinda. The Phoenix, I thought, was a wonderful magazine. By its very name, the name suggests that it grew out of the ashes of the jinx which it did. Uh, Walter Gibson and uh, Bruce Elliott started that magazine essentially to take up the space of, of the jinx when, when Anneman died. And that continued for 350 issues. Actually went to 400 if you include the new Phoenix, which 
was sort of a mini-resurrection. Annam was extraordinary, and his taste in what he put in the magazine and his commentary in the, in the various issues was just remarkably insightful and special. I think the world of, uh, of Gibson and Eliot, Eliot was the one who did most of the, Gibson dropped out fairly early. Eliot was clearly a very insightful man. I never met him. I did know Walter Gibson, actually, when, when, when he was in his later years, but I never met Bruce Elliott, but clearly he was an interesting and smart guy and, and fun to be with, someone you'd like to, uh, you would have liked to have sat down and had a drink and a conversation. And, and so The Phoenix is very worthwhile. I like magazines in some ways more than I like books. I've said this before, but a book is sort of like a painting, whereas a magazine is sort of like a bunch of snapshots quick photographs. The painting, because it's been executed over a longer period of time, the painter is able to go into making certain choices and be very careful about things. And a magazine, because it's being published usually on, on a deadline, because of its scheduling, it, it by, by necessity can't be quite as thoughtfully crafted. But therefore, you learn a lot from the magazines that you don't learn necessarily in books if that makes any sense. And if we're talking specifically about mentalism, Peter Warlock's magazines, the Pentagram and later the New Pentagram, are filled with good material. There are a number of, of British mag magic and mentalism publications that I like. Uh, Harry Stanley's The Gen uh, contains remarkably good material, some of which uh, was later marketed, and uh, and with good reason. It's good enough that it could stand alone as something you would buy, but, but the pages of that magazine are filled with good things. Obviously, Genie, with this massive uh, amount of, of information covering 80 years, The Sphinx uh, it, it has good stuff. That, that takes more time to wade through. A magazine like The Jinx or The Phoenix is more focused. They were shorter publications. But if you're willing to take the time and dig in, Abra had some sensational stuff. I, I was, uh, I sort of grew up on Abra, uh, although a decade or, or more out of sync. When I was a kid, say 12, 13, around there, I used to go, I was living in the Boston area in the suburbs, and I would, on Saturdays I started going into Boston downtown proper and visiting Holden's magic shop. And uh, I learned an awful lot during those years. Uh, the fellow who ran the, the shop at that point was named Ronnie Gann, and he was a very nice and generous fellow who showed me lots of things. And, but in those days, you could buy a pretty good trick or, or pamphlet for a dollar. But there were many Saturdays where I didn't have a dollar. I had the small amount of money required for the, for the train both ways, and less than a dollar. Well, he had a cardboard box in, in the shop that contained old magazines, and those sold for 10 cents a piece. So I very quickly figured out that for an investment of 10 cents, I could get more than one trick. I could get a bunch of things, and then I quickly realized not just the tricks, but also the reports of what was going on in the magic world. But of course, these weren't brand new magazines, right? And Abra's were in this cardboard bin, and those were only five cents because it was a smaller publication. So I wound up reading a lot of Abra's from the early 50s as part of this sort of weekly thing where I would always come home with no less than a couple of magazines. And so I, I, uh, I've always had this sort of false memory of British magic in the 1950s that, uh, of course, I wasn't, not only, not only was I not there in Britain at the time, but I wasn't old enough, even if I'd been in Britain 
you know, I was in diapers. So magazines really taught me an awful lot about, about magic and mentalism. Uh, and again, not simply the tricks, but uh, in, in the case of magazines, you get a good glimpse into the sociology. My granddad's never thrown away any of his Abras that he's owned. So I also grew up with an Abra, but a lot more than uh, a decade <laughs> out of date. Um, so he's got all of those. So you mentioned kind of this this routine of, of going to this shop and, mm-hmm. and buying magazines. What led you uh, there in the first place? What, what first ignited the interest in magic for you? Well, I, as I mentioned, I started in magic somewhere around the age of seven or eight. And undoubtedly, I'd seen a magician on TV, even though television was sort of in its infancy uh, back in the 50s. But there was variety on TV. So I must have seen some, but I don't remember that as a starting point. Uh, the, the earliest I remember being suddenly smitten with magic was when an older cousin uh, taught me two card tricks, very rudimentary card tricks. And I was caught. I mean, I suddenly just was in rapture uh, regarding this. And then a month or two later, an uncle taught me a cut and restored string. And that was it. I was hooked. So I began looking for information. And in the local library, I was able to find some books uh, about magic, some of which I was able to understand. And uh, that began this quest. And for a long time as a kid, I didn't know any other magicians. Not that they didn't exist somewhere in the vicinity, but not in my immediate neighborhood. There were, there, you know, I, my, if memory serves, I had like one friend who had a very tangential interest, but no one else to, no one I could session with at the age of nine or whatever. But I gradually began to understand that there was a universe out there that included magic shops and magic magazines and magic dealers and, and publications and all of this stuff. And so uh, I, I began going to magic shops, as I said, when I was probably entered my first magic shop somewhere around the age of nine or ten, but started going as a regular thing when I was old enough, uh, which is say about 12, uh, to, to be able to go on my own. So I did and went to those shops a lot. When I was 13, I went to my first magic convention, a small event in the Boston area that was held annually. It was two nights in a day. So I now got to see real magicians performing and such. I actually got to see some really great magicians in those early years. And it just continued and just kept expanding for me. And who were some of those magicians that, that you first saw live? Well, I remember at the very first convention I ever went to, one of the stars was Jack Channon, who was uh, an, a magic dealer uh, for most of his career, although a very, very good performer. And he impressed me greatly because his work, which was almost all based on, on sleight of hand, but it looked really magical. And his, his technical skills were, were augmented by a, a, an amazing sense of timing uh, and psychology and, and a kind of oddly pixie-ish personality, and it all just came together. So he made a profound impact on me. I remember at that very first convention, uh, I also met Carol Fox for the first time. And then the next year, uh, I met Jay Marshall, uh, both of whom eventually became close friends. But I remember at the time, when I had first met them, thinking how lucky I was to meet these elderly veterans before they died. And of course, they were in their 40s. But to me, at the time, they seemed ancient. So, so now I'm well past my 40s and, and uh, 
there are kids at magic conventions who look at me and say, oh, he still walks. So there you are. I've always loved Jay Marshall's very dry um, sense of humor. Mm -hmm. I wonder what were some of the lessons that, that you took from him in those early years and in fact in, in a life of knowing him? Well, I'm, I knew Jay for 40 years and uh, I learned, I'm, I've said before, I learned more about my profession from Jay Marshall than from any other source. Jay was an encyclopedia of knowledge, not only about magic, but about variety entertainment in general and to some extent all of entertainment. He worked everywhere. He worked the Palladium. He worked uh, the Palace in New York. He worked a lot of early television. So he had a, a you know, a, an extraordinary set of credentials. You know, so just listening to Jay talking about things like opening for Frank Sinatra upon Sinatra's first Las Vegas engagement. And these are amazing stories. But what I got from Jay was not only a lot of information about show business and, and specifically about the world of magicians, but an attitude about that that I think really rubbed off on me. An affection for that world, including the decades of that world that preceded my involvement, as just as Jay had an affection for the decades that preceded his involvement. Uh, a respect for certain traditions. Uh, Jay certainly liked what was new and fresh, when it came to, you know, clever young guys doing new card tricks or whatever. But he also had a great deal of, of uh, interest and admiration for the past, what had preceded him. And, and, and uh, that certainly affected me very strongly. So I learned a lot from Jay. And when did uh, magic go from, from a hobby and, and maybe an obsession as a, as a young yeah. boy to... A professional career? Well, there wasn't a specific moment. Uh, I started doing children's birthday parties. I know that might be hard to imagine, but I, I started doing kids' birthday parties when I was about 12. Uh, and, and so that was my first experience of performing magic and getting paid. And then later in my late teens, was able to get occasional gigs doing close-up magic. It was somewhere in my mid to late teens that I first discovered mentalism in a serious sense. Obviously, any beginner's book has a couple of mental tricks in it, but the Jinx and, and other books uh, that took this subject more seriously, I, I began to understand and, and find those books when I was, as I say, in my, my mid to late teens. But I somehow instinctively realized that I was too young to perform mentalism at least by my standards. I felt that I needed some age behind me to uh, establish a type of authority and performance that I was too young to do. So I studied mentalism quite seriously without really doing it uh, for some years. So in, in my performing, it was mostly uh, close-up magic, a lot of cards, but not only that. And then in my early 20s, I kind of started to dip my toe into performing mentalism. But all during this, I, I hadn't made the decision that this would be my full-time profession because no one in my family had ever done anything in show business. And it, it sort of didn't seem like an option. I, I kind of always vaguely thought that whatever I wound up doing for a job, it would somehow involve a desk. So I went to college. After college, spent two, three years kicking around doing assorted things. Some, some of that was doing close-up magic, but some of it was music. I was in some bands and, and uh, played lounge piano, but also other odd things, graphic design, 
cooking in a restaurant, just a, a, an eclectic range of things. While I sort of tried to figure out, okay, eventually you'll settle down and get a, a career. And at some point around the time I turned 24, approximately, I, I suddenly had this epiphany where I realized that no, I didn't have to relegate magic to something I would do on the side. That, I, that could be my career, uh, which I kind of hadn't held as an option. So once I realized that, made steps to, to try and enter into it as an actual profession, and promptly starved. It was not easy getting off the ground. Part of that was because I wanted to be a nightclub mentalist based on things I'd been reading. And in America, the nightclub industry had basically disappeared. Uh, at that time, we're talking the 1970s, and, and uh, the few nightclubs that still existed were mostly jazz clubs, uh, occasionally with a comedian. But I stubbornly wanted to work nightclubs anyway, and there were uh, a few places I was able to get into, and, and it was right around this time that I made the full transition into, into doing stand-up mentalism. Fortunately, I was able to, uh, it didn't happen overnight, but I was able to get booked at the... Uh, Boston Playboy Club. The, this was the Playboy Club was already in its downward spiral, but there were still some clubs in major cities that were still flourishing, and I got onto that circuit and uh, some other. There were some jazz clubs that I was able to perform at, and then in 1978, approximately, there was this sudden boom of comedy clubs in the United States, and whereas there had been essentially none, and then in the mid 70s there there were literally three or four of them in New York and Los Angeles. And then almost overnight, they sprung up like mushrooms, and every major city had not only one comedy club, but most of the big cities had two, three, or more. And even the, the smaller cities and mid-sized cities would have at least one. So there's suddenly, very quickly, there was this huge circuit, and, uh, and I was able to get onto that circuit. Magicians that I've spoken to that have, have tried to, to crack comedy comedy uh, clubs in, in the UK and to, to a degree American friends that I've spoken to, but right. it, it feels like there's slightly uh, there's a few differences. I wonder, what was it like as, as a magician, as a mentalist, being, I imagine, you know, you might it might be, let's say, a 12-act a bill and 11 comedians and, and then on comes you as the magician and the mentalist. Was it like that or was there a lot more variety to the kind of acts in those days? No, um, most American comedy clubs then as now don't book a lot of variety. There are some exceptions. There's one club in Southern California that is actually called the Magic and Comedy Club and they have usually in the middle position they have a, a magic act occasionally the the feature act is, is magician but most comedy clubs no uh, but the format is not what you just described in america there certainly are what we call open mic nights i, I assume you have the same where a, a lot of people get up and do very short sets to showcase or to break in material but in most american comedy clubs certainly back then open mic nights would be on a monday when there wasn't that much business anyway but the the main part of the week so starting perhaps tuesday or wednesday through the end of the weekend there would be a three-act show that was the format and the the way it was almost always the same was there would be an opening act who would do 10 to 15 minutes and would also function as the compare. And then there'd be a middle act who would do 
eh, 20 minutes, maybe. And then there would be the headliner who would do anywhere from 40 minutes to an hour, depending on the, the policy of that particular club. Now, the opening acts got paid terribly. They were usually local, so they didn't have traveling expenses. Uh, and they were usually early in their careers, hoping to make enough of an impression that they could that they could then rise up to that middle level. The middle acts usually traveled, and they were paid okay, but but not great money. But again, they were aspiring to get the headline slot. And then the headliner, doing more time, and whose name might draw people and, and such, that paid pretty well by the standards of the day. I entered the comedy scene as a headliner, not out of any great calculation, but just kind of dumb luck and timing. By 1978 or so, when this comedy club boom suddenly very quickly came into existence, I had a CV. I had done uh, one national television chat show. I had been in several Playboy clubs and a few other credentials that, that uh, were such that, that I could enter into that as a headliner, so I didn't have to work my way up from, from that starting uh, entry position. And for 13 years, that was my primary work, uh, going all over the United States, headlining comedy clubs. And I believe uh, I, uh, I was the only non-comedian to consistently do that, to consistently headline clubs. There, there was one specific hypnotist named Sam Vine, a Canadian, who, who for a period of a few years at least, did that circuit, and his show would have been in the headline slot. Harry Anderson came into this a little bit later than me, I think, and, and I, he worked his way up to headliner, he didn't start as headliner. Most of the magicians who, who or comedy magicians who worked comedy clubs during that period were middle acts. Uh, very few of them were able to get to the, the headline status. Mac King did, but it, he had to work for it, he had to... Uh, to kind of build his way up. But I think during that period, I was kind of unique in, in, in that I had entered as a headliner and stayed that way. And I also wasn't particularly selling comedy. Now there, there was, as there, there was and still is, humor in my work. I'm happy to say that if you were to go see a show of mine, there would be laughter in, 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 in a desired way. Uh, but I would never say that I am a comedian, per se. Uh, but there was enough humor and comedy in my in my work that the audience did not feel shortchanged. Uh, in those days, it, it varied depending on the city and, and whether I'd been there before or whether I'd been on television recently, uh, that in some places there was an audience that already knew me. And, and so a, a, a certain percentage, sometimes a large percentage of the people coming, knew who they were coming to see and, and kind of what I was going to do. And, but there were plenty of places where people had no idea. There were a lot of these clubs that built up a very good relationship with their customers such that the customers trusted the club to book good acts. So they, in some cases, wouldn't even look to see who was booked. They would just say, well, it's a new week, so on Thursday we'll go to, to the local comedy club and we'll see those three acts, whoever they happen to be. So plenty of times people would come into a comedy club with no knowledge that they were going to see a mind reader until I got on stage, basically. And that didn't always make it easy to get my performance off the ground. There were some cases where it took perhaps a little more effort than others, uh, 
but it was also a valuable learning experience to, to do that with audiences that were not always predetermined to want to see a mentalism show. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy, and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Well, there we are. We are just halfway through our interview. There's more. There's more. Our interview with Max Maven. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I enjoyed speaking to him and have enjoyed listening back to it. There's some amazing things to come uh, with the rest of this interview but we just need to take a quick break from Max to thank our sponsors for this episode a massive thank you to our sponsor Magic Box. Magic Box is one of the largest magic shops in the UK based up in Newcastle home of Sting and Jimmy Nail and Alan Shearer but they're also online home to Jeeves and MySpace Tom magicbox.co.uk Magicbox offer everything and anything that a magician could need, want or desire. Card tricks, coin tricks, sponge magic, mind reading, tricks to impress people down the pub, app tricks, utility props, children's magic, quailer text balloons and much more. Magicbox stock it all. There's perfect magic for all performers, be you stage, cabaret, close up or just a hobbyist. And of course Magicbox sell a large range of products from Max Maven himself, from his Video Mind Magic and Kayfabe video ranges, available in both physical form and instant download, to individual effects created by Max and marketed and available on magicbox.co.uk. Learn the skills that have helped make Max the star he is at magicbox.co.uk. Can't make it to Newcastle? Don't worry! They have free delivery on all orders over £50 and a no quibble return service. And one final thing we must quickly say about their customer service. It's second to none. It's the best we've ever had. We've bought a few pretty big products from the guys at Magic. They're always very friendly at conventions at Blackpool, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be going off to Blackpool. Do go check out their stall. They're always very happy to demonstrate things. They are, they're not this sort of magic shop that's just like, oh, look at the DVD. They're deming, deming, deming all day there at Blackpool. And I do remember one year there was a certain prop, a thought transmitter, I believe, that was like the talk of the convention. We'd seen it on the Saturday, they sold out, didn't they? They sold out by the time we went back, but, so good. By the time we got back to Shrewsbury on the Monday, it had already arrived, didn't it? It had already arrived. It had already arrived. A great utility prop for any mentalists out there before transmitter. Yeah, and we've also bought, I think we bought some escapology uh, based apparatus. Is that where we got our straight jacket from? I believe so. Oh, from uh, from the guys there. So look, they really do have everything. But it's now time for. It's time So this week's Gig of the Week is a former podcast guest, I suppose, kind of, sort of. There was an episode over Christmas, you may remember the ghost of Podcast Pass, which is Pete Furman, an old interview that I did with him back in my days as a broadcast journalist. And Pete Furman is back on tour. Kane, what are the details that people need to know? Well, the show is called Marvels, or... As I imagine Pete would say, it's Myrtles. Uh, so it's either Marvels or Myrtles. 
and that is on on the 1st and the 2nd of February at the new Wimbledon Theatre, which is a lovely little theatre. They have some great shows on there. Um, if you've never been to the new Wimbledon Theatre, it's worth going just to look at the theatre. But even better than that, Pete Furman, the pioneer of comedy magic, really, in this, uh, in this country with his new show, Marvels. Yeah, and of course that is Friday and Saturday of this week, but the tour continues for Pete, so check out his social media website, all those kind of things, to see where he is next. But now, let's get back into it with Max Maven. You mentioned being a, a unique act in that environment. Did you find yourself sticking to maybe your perceptions of what you wanted to be like as a performer, or did you find that performing for those specific audiences meant you actually had to tailor that performance in those days? It's an interesting question. I'm not sure I can give you a good answer because obviously uh, it was some of each. You know, any good performer is going to be aware of the of, of what the audience is telling him or her, assuming they're willing to listen. If you listen to an audience, they will let you know by their reactions, by their behavior, by their simple numbers of attendance, whether what you're doing is working or failing. So I'm, I would I would never say that the that, that that I didn't listen to my audience and try to make some adjustments to to fit their needs. But having said that, I also felt very strongly, as I still do, that part of the performer's job, or at least my job as a performer, is to teach the audience how to how to like what I'm doing, to to guide them into into their role in this equation. So there were things that I may have adjusted in the way of timing or structure to cater to the interests and needs of, of that comedy club audience as it existed then. But there were other things that I said, nope, I'm going to do it this way and I'm going to bring them to me. So it was a combination. And at this point, you've got, by now, uh, this moment, the day that we're talking, a TV credential list longer than my arm. <laughs> um, but at this point, when you're, you're Max Maven, the comedy club performer yeah. was it a big aspiration of yours at that point to, to break into tv i guess so i mean i guess every performer or not every but almost every performer wants television because in recent time in the latter part of the 20th century to today uh, television is is perceived as a credential and if you haven't done television you haven't made it you know so there was a part of me that wanted to do television just for that reason you know, other performers were were always obviously pushing their own credits that's what you would see most often in a paragraph that was describing someone who was coming up in a in a club or something so there was a a pr value not only promotion but also just sheer building a, a a kind of set of credentials. But but beyond that, early on in my experience in performing on television, I, I very quickly came to understand that performing on television is different than performing in a live circumstance. The conditions change, the reaction of the people at home, the degree to which they are engaged, especially knowing how easy it is for them to change the channel. It's a completely different performance form. Now I say completely different. Obviously there's a great overlap but there are some specific things that work very well on TV and not well at all live and vice versa. And so early in my experiments with, with working on television, I began to sort those out. And I also developed material for radio. 
which was a, a, a good medium in those days for promoting these types of shows. And I began to approach doing other media as a deliberate thing to explore. How can I do television and make, make it not only fit me, but make it connect to the viewers? So in the 1980s, is when I first started doing interactive material on television where people at home would come up and touch the screen and move their finger around or do whatever they did. And, and it created the illusion of interaction at a time before, I mean, now we have real interactive TV on our smartphones, uh, but, but at that time it, it was only hypothetical. Uh, but, but creating this interactive illusion uh, was something I, I really liked, and, and so I started doing it a fair amount. Magicians usually were rather negative about it because they would see me do something on, on uh, a television show and uh, one of these pieces, and they would say, but uh, he just said words. I mean, he didn't do anything. It was just math. What they didn't realize was how much skill was required. First of all, someone had to create the material, and, and more often than not, I had created the material, so there's that. But also, doing television of that sort, where you're talking to a camera, uh, can involve a lot of requirements that the average person watching may not realize. First of all, if you move from one place to another on television, uh, if you're off by a few centimeters, that can destroy the shot. So learning exactly not only when you're moving, but to be very precise in where you move, that's not a casual thing. And then bringing things in on time. Years ago, I was on a national variety show in the States. Uh, this was sometime in the mid to late 80s. And I, I had a routine, which the producer had initially said to me when I described what I proposed to do, he said, how long does this run? And I said, how long do you want it to run? And I was very flattered when he said, oh, yes, I forgot I'm talking to Max Maven. You'll bring it in wherever we need. So... He said, can I tell you when, we, when we're actually doing the show? And I said, sure. I said, and we agreed, it was some, something between three and four minutes. So w when we did the rehearsals for the show, he told me that he would like it to come in at about under four minutes. And I said, I can do that. So we ran it uh, without a full audience, but some audience, because what I was doing involved members of the audience doing stuff. And brought it, I brought it in at three, three minutes and 45 seconds, and they were very happy. And then we had another rehearsal the next day, and it came in at 3.45, and they were, again, very happy. And this is, means adjusting because the spectator's behavior is not always going to be the same. And then came the actual show itself, which was done live. This was a live broadcast, national. And this thing has clocked at 3.45, and I'm comfortable with where it is. And uh, I'm standing backstage... Vanessa Williams is singing a song on camera. Uh, the host was a very popular American host and producer named Dick Clark. And so after I'm standing backstage, Vanessa Williams is going to finish her song. Dick Clark is going to come out and outro her. He will then do a brief bantering interview with Reba McIntyre, the country singer, who's sitting in the audience. And then he's going to throw to me. He's going to introduce me, and I'm going to come out and do my three minutes and 45 seconds. And as I'm standing there and Vanessa Williams has less than a minute to go on her song, someone comes running up to me from the booth, from the director's booth, and says, Max, we're running 10 seconds over. Can you make it up for us? And I said, sure. So somewhere in all of my piles of papers, there's a, a note from the producer of the show 
thanking me for, for my wonderful professionalism because I actually shaved off 20 seconds, which in live television, that's incredibly important. And so I not only gave them back the 10 seconds they were over, but 10 more to play with. And they thought I was the greatest thing imaginable. So when I, when I hear online people, when, when people have commented about the, the interactive pieces and they say, well, there's, anybody could do that, I kind of smile and say, no. Early 90s, there was quite a lot of mixed Bill Magic shows uh, that you were a part of, the best magic here in the UK, the world's right. greatest magic in America. Right. Um, you mentioned that there's been some people that maybe didn't enjoy your interactive magic so much. Yeah. But do you think those interactive pieces that you were doing, which were often the water cooler moments at the end of these shows because it's happened to those people at home, do you think those were integral parts to you being on so many of those shows? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the magicians used to carp about them, but that's, again, because I think they said, well, I could stand there and deliver those instructions. And, and in fairness, there were magicians who really liked them and, and did not have that attitude. But the public loved them. I mean, I used to get, uh, for some reason, taxi drivers. I remember on multiple occasions getting into a cab and as I got in, the cab driver would turn around and he would suddenly smile and start moving his finger in the air as if playing one of those interactive games. So it was, you know, you're that guy. So, so the public loved them. Look, no one's going to like everything that, that everyone does, and that certainly includes what I do. And that's perfectly okay. You know, there are types of music that are insanely popular that I don't enjoy listening to, and, and nor should I. It's not a question of whether I should or shouldn't. People have different tastes, thank goodness. Otherwise, we'd all be eating McDonald's. It's, it's a, a diverse world, and there are different types of music, and there are different types of art, and there are different types of literature, and there are different types of food, and all sorts of things that people are allowed to like or dislike. You know, Penn Jillette, many years ago, when, ten, when Penn & Teller were, were still fairly... I have no Penn & Teller since 1976, but, but they really became well-known about a decade later in the 1984-5 range when they, when they brought their two-person show to New York and it took off. And right around that time, there was magic convention in New York that everybody who came to the convention got a ticket to Penn & Teller. And after the show, Penn & Teller stayed around to ask, answer questions. And someone in the audience, during the question-answering thing, Someone said, how do you feel about the fact that there are magicians who hate your work? Because at the time, they were pretty controversial. I think that's ebbed a lot in the years since. But at that time, there were people who really didn't like their style for various reasons. And so someone said, how do you feel about the fact that there are magicians who really dislike what you do? And Penn said, they should because there's no reason why everybody should like the same things. If someone says... To me, and, and the reference is dated, but they're actually the examples uh, he, he used. He said, if someone says to me, hey, I got tickets to see the Rolling Stones, I might say, the Stones suck, kinks rule. You get the idea. So, so he said, that's fine. It seems to be fine in, in every other endeavor, rock music or, or whatever. But somehow, as magicians, we're all supposed to like Doug Henning and David Copperfield equally and, and have to have no uh, discrimination as far as what our own tastes are and what we think is good for whatever reason. And I thought that was a terrific answer and, and, and one with which I wholeheartedly agree. If someone doesn't like my work... Uh, I'd rather if everybody liked my work. I think I've got a pretty good average as far as 
the percentage of people who do, but there are okay. It doesn't meet everybody's taste. That's fine. There are again, there are, there are musicians whose work I I would not pay a penny to see, and if if it come if it were to come on the radio, I would change the the station. That doesn't mean that the people who like them are wrong. It just means it doesn't suit my tastes. And and in the same way, if someone says, "Oh, I've seen Max Maven. I I don't like him. I don't enjoy him." That's a valid reaction. I don't think it's particularly valid to say, I've seen Max Maven, he has no talent. I, I would hope that I deserve a little more than that. But if someone says, you know what, his talent goes in a direction that doesn't do a thing for me. Great. That's how I feel about opera. I wonder what have been some of the highlights for you then from, from bits that you've done on TV. These may be things that the listener may, may remember as you recall, but I wonder if there's been any, any highlights or Boy, that's hard to say. I, I certainly have, have enjoyed finding new ways to approach TV, whether with the interactive stuff or otherwise. Ways of sort of carving out my my niche, as opposed to just being another one in a parade of performers. I like hosting, which I've had the chance to do far more in live shows than on television, but I've done a, a certain amount of hosting on television. That's a whole different skill set, and I, and I enjoy it. I've had some very interesting experiences working in foreign language situations. And that, of course, changes the rules drastically. Uh, working with an interpreter changes the timing on everything. And, and so that's, uh, uh, to me at least, uh, uh, an appealing challenge to, to try to, uh, to accomplish, which I've been able to do. It's, it's hard to single out, you know, it's sort of like asking a parent, which is your favorite child? You know, uh, it's hard to single things out. There are a few things I've done that I've particularly enjoyed. There's a piece I've done on television several times that I did the first time I came to England as an adult. I'd been a few times when I was younger, but the first time I came to England as an adult in the magic context was in 1978, and I came to Hastings, where the British Ring Convention took place. And I don't remember how this came about, but I, I agreed to do an outdoor stunt, which I guess they had one each year, and, and most times it was an escape of some sort. But I did a piece of mine called the Human Deck of Playing Cards, which involved 53 people on a beach, in this case the, the beach at Hastings, each representing a different playing card and, and then shuffling themselves, which was pretty funny. And the first time I ever did that piece was on television. And the idea of getting 53 people to just run around like maniacs for the sake of this routine. It was a good memory. It was nice. In 1984, I did a, a video uh, produced by MCA Universal, the big motion, uh, motion picture company, called Max Maven's Mind Games. And it was the video that reads your mind. It was all interactive stuff, close to an hour of, of this stuff. And this was in the very earliest days of home video. It was just a, a bur burgeoning market that hadn't fully defined itself. And... Uh, we had a pretty decent budget for it and a lot of planning and writing and, and so forth. And now the very first thing we shot was the opening of, of the, the video. And the opening of the video was a thing which today would be accomplished through computer graphics pretty effortlessly. But we did it as a practical effect and done, and done in real time. So what happened was the camera came upon uh, a curtain and the curtain opened and the camera pushed through the curtain and there was a door and the door opened and it pushed further in and there was another door but this one slid apart and we went through however many doors that opened in different ways. I mean it's a gag that's been used by others but 
the very last thing was it came through to kind of our home base set and I was standing there and the camera pushed and pushed in until finally it came up to my face and I said boo and that was the opening of the piece but that was all done in one take with people I mean the camera was on a, a track moving forward and there were people running around that you couldn't see opening these doors as someone else ran to get the next one it, was, it, it involved you know, all told with the people running tech and sound and lights and, and camera and all of these things, there were 20 people or something to, to make this moment happen. And a lot of effort and money. I mean, these doors had to be built and, and all this stuff and lighting and all of these things. And I'm standing on this stage and just before the director called action on the, on the first take, I remember thinking to myself, there are hundreds of thousands of dollars being invested and the effort of dozens of people being invested all focused on me having the opportunity to play dress up and it was one of the best moments of my life and the result Dante looked reasonably good. You mentioned playing dress up we've spoken about TV performing magic uh, interactive magic mentalism on TV but something that other people may be familiar with is, is you as an actor on, yeah. on TV the episode in which you're in uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is my favourite episode of oh, Fresh Prince you. of Bel-Air. It's very good. I wonder, it, it almost seemed like you were Hollywood's go-to guy if they had a character with a uh, dark magic stick, <laughs> so to speak. Was that an aspiration of yours to get into those dr dramatic roles or did it, it just come to you? Well, it wasn't a direct aspiration. I mean, it was something I was not uninterested in, but it wasn't. I wasn't trying to become an actor in my career. But on the other hand, I had some acting background from school which I felt was helpful in developing as a performer. And I certainly wasn't disinterested in acting as, as a possibility. And so over the years, I've done a handful of television roles. The first significant acting job I had was on a show that's still on in the U.S. It's a soap opera, an afternoon drama called General Hospital. And in the late 1970s, and it, it was the most, it was not only the, the number one soap opera, but it was all over the media. I mean, the, the, the two stars, the, the, the romantic pairing that was at the, in, the, in the front of that show, they were on the cover of every national magazine. It was huge. Two weeks before I was on the show, Liz Taylor was a, was a guest. So it, it was a big deal. And I was on two episodes with, with a substantial part. I mean, the first episode I did had 60 lines, which, I mean, that was a significant amount of, uh, of involvement. And that was really fun to do. It was a good learning experience as well. A year or two later, I was on Mork and Mindy with Robin Williams. And that was, of course, a very different experience. Robin Williams being the manic uh, comedian that he was. Uh, I spent the week attached to Jonathan Winters, an older manic comedian who was a big inspiration to Robin Williams and who Robin had gotten written into the show during its third season or something. And, and I grew up as a kid listening to Jonathan Winters' albums and uh, record albums and watching him on TV. So getting the chance to spend a week kind of glued to his side was pretty thrilling for me. And then ultimately Fresh Prince came, came about as well. That was the only one of, uh, uh, those are the significant ones, the little walk-ons and something else don't count that much. The Fresh Prince was the one that was actually written with me in mind. I got guest star billing and guest star money. I'm not actually on screen all that much, but I'm the sort of linchpin as far as the storyline. So the story kind of is generated by 
Will Smith and his cousin coming to see a, a hypnosis show, and I'm the the hypnotist. And the guy who wrote that, I mean, these comedy shows tend to have committees of, of writers, but, but the guy who was the primary engine for writing that episode wrote the part, he knew me, not super well, but he knew me, and said, this is kind of who I have in mind. And then once the script was finished and and now they were looking to cast it i guess the casting agent said okay now you said you had someone in mind how do we get to him so i got the call i came in they said you're it we so, so that was the easiest audition i've ever done and and that was really fun uh will smith who at that point was just about his second or third movie had come out right then and everybody knew he was going to be a, a, just a huge star. But he, he had agreed to do an, another season of the series, largely out of generosity. He could have gotten out of his contract, I'm quite sure. But he didn't want to have all the people who worked on the show, both cast and crew, suddenly abandoned and the show ending. So he agreed to extend for another season. But everybody knew that he, he didn't have to be there and that he was about to be an A-list actor who who could who could open a movie as we say in the in the in the film business we say if an actor can open a movie it means their name alone is enough to get a a good turnout when the movie first opens and it was clear that he was poised to be that and he knew it too and he was very nice about it he didn't lord it over people but but it gave him a tremendous amount of authority in terms of if there was anything in the script that he th- he said you know that that line seems extraneous. Nobody wanted to argue the point. And his instincts were really good, so it, it was all right. So that was quite an experience. Thinking of Will Smith, thinking of TV, thinking of all these roles, yeah. L.A. springs to mind. Is that where you're based at the minute, and how long have you been there, if so? Uh, yes, I, I was uh, raised mostly in, in the Boston area, which is on the northeast part of the U.S., uh, with the exception of two years spent living abroad. Uh, I, I was based in the greater Boston area for all of my life, straight through, including college, until I, I moved to L.A., which is 3,000 miles away on the West Coast. And I've now been in L.A. for, it's 40 years now, so it's more than half my life. And I feel very much an L.A. person now, but uh, wouldn't have thought to be when I was growing up. There's an amazing building in L.A. that we, we spoke about before we turned this on. It's where I went for my 30th birthday, the Magic Castle. Talk to me a little bit about what that building means to you. Well, the Magic Castle is an amazing place. I first learned of the Magic Castle in the mid-60s, so only a couple of years into its existence when I started reading Genie magazine. That's when I discovered Genie. And in those days, Bill Larson Jr. was the editor of Genie, but also the president of the AMA and the Magic Castle. So in every issue of Genie, he would tell the reader what was going on in the community of the Magic Castle. And Bill really had a gift for making people feel involved. So you would read his accounts of what was going on. And even if you were a young adolescent 3,000 miles away, you felt like you were part of it. And so I just really couldn't wait to visit this amazing place that I felt connected to. I went out to LA for the very first time at the start of 1977, booked at the Magic Castle at the invitation of Bill Larson, which was nice, and moved there at the end of 78. So less than two years afterwards, I made the move. And it was a very, was and still is, a very important place to me. For one thing, I was able to make certain really important friendships. 
arguably the most important being Di Vernon, with whom I developed a, a pretty close relationship. And of course, the castle is where he hung out most nights. But a lot of other people. There's a, a very thriving magic community in L.A. with plenty of people you wouldn't want to spend two minutes with, but plenty of people who you'd want to spend two weeks with who are really interesting people doing innovative work and exciting work and so forth. So it's been very nice to be a part of that community. As far as the club itself, um, I have worked it many times. I don't work it very often now, partly because I don't want to feel like I'm, I don't want to feel like I'm, I'm visiting my workplace if I go there just to hang out. I do work it, uh, but, but well, once or twice a year, maybe, if, if the booker is Jack Goldfinger and he now and again says, hey, what are you doing on this upcoming week? And so, so I do work it occasionally and enjoy doing that, but spend much more time there just socializing and seeing good shows. I have, over the years, worked literally every bookable location in the club, including a couple that no longer exist. And I believe I can honestly say that I'm the only person who's ever worked every single location, because I also, for a while, in the early days of my being at the castle, I was the backup medium for the Houdini seance. So, uh, so I really have worked every location. And it's a great place. I was on the board of trustees, which is one of the groups that helps make decisions about uh, how the club is run. Not so much the financial decisions, which are held by the board of directors, but rather we're more about the experience. The, the, the trustees are more about how, how does the, the guests experience the club, how do the performers experience the club, and, and the like. And that was rewarding. I did that for nine years. I was the booker for two years, the director of entertainment. That sounds much more lofty. I have produced the award show twice. That's the annual event, and it's usually fairly large. Uh, and been a consultant on other award shows. What else have I done? I mean, I've, 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 I was on the search committee that found our current uh, general manager back around six years ago or so, a, a terrific guy named Joe Furlow, who has done a remarkable job in improving the club, saving it from some things that were headed in a bad direction. The, the club has never been healthier in terms of business and the professional way it's run. There have been upgrades in a lot of the physical details of the club. Uh, the food is the best it's ever been. We have a relatively recent chef who, who just improved everything. The quality of the booking is, is really good. The way the performers are treated has, has greatly improved. So I don't want to make it sound like it's everything is, is rosy there. As with any organization, especially one that has now been around for 55 years, 56. Are there problems occasionally? Certainly. And are there conflicts between people who don't have the same vision or whatever? Absolutely. But having said that, it is remarkable that it is still thriving. You know, Egyptian Hall lasted 35 years. I don't know of any magic club or location or theater that has come close to being active and viable for 56 years. It's, it's, it's an amazing place. If, if the listener hasn't been, you should go. It's, uh, it's terrific. And the flaws are, are, are just so minimized by what's good about the place. When I'm in town, I, I live walking distance from the club. And when I'm in LA, I go 
at least once a week. It depends a little bit on who's there, and, and, and on some weeks I'm there much, much more than once because there may be people performing there who are friends that I want to see, or maybe not a friend who I want to, but I've heard about. And of course, a lot of, when magicians pass through LA, they're almost certainly going to come to the club uh, for a night or something, so I get the chance to, to meet up there as well so i'm there a lot two questions on yes. on the magic castle and mm-hmm. i must apologize they are both a little bit like making you pick your own children again okay. uh, number one is out of all of the the yeah. rooms that yeah. you've worked at the castle i wonder yeah. if there's one that's a favorite and question number two yeah when you were in your role as director of entertainment it, who are some of the people that you booked that worked it's memorable to you or some of your favorite people you booked mm-hmm. okay let's see my favorite room, I can tell you, although I might give you a different answer next month. The room that I've been working most often in the past several years is uh, a room called the Peller, which seats about 50 people, and normally it's the act is two performers, and it is encouraged that they they work together to create something new that is that is a, a combined piece rather than simply one doing. 20 minutes and the other doing 20 minutes because the show is meant to run 40 to 45 minutes. And so you get some very interesting uh, results out of that uh, as different combinations of people produce different things. When I work it, I get the whole 45 minutes to myself and that's actually a a nice performing length for me, so I like that. The room has uh, its own uh, stage manager, so you get lighting and sound that can be altered at at any moment, whereas uh, in the parlor, for example, uh, or the close-up room, there's no one to run the lights and, 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 and there's no sound system to speak of other than there's music, but I mean, normally you don't work with a microphone in either of those rooms. The palace is nice. It's a little theater that seats about 130, and it's just recently been remodeled, so it's kind of nicer than ever. I had a, uh, what was this, two years ago or something? Jack Goldfinger came to me and said, do you want to work the close-up room for a week? And there was a theme to the week that uh, it was it was a week in remembrance of Irene Larson, who had died earlier that year. Her birthday would have fallen a week. So Jack was asking people who were friends of Irene's if they would work. And so he, he said, would you work the close-up room? And I said, okay. I said, I haven't worked that room in over 20 years. Not for deliberate reasons. It just hadn't happened. So I worked that room and had forgotten how enjoyable that room is to work. It's, you know, a little boutique arrangement uh, seats about 25 people and and the sight lines are all really good. I I wouldn't list the close-up room as being higher than the Peller in my current list, but it could change at any any moment. So I, I, you know, the Peller is currently in the in the favorite position, but but it's not necessarily permanently there. As to people I booked at the club, one thing I tried to do during those two years in terms of the booking itself, I mean, I tried to do a lot of things in, tor- in sort of changing the attitude toward the performers who I felt were not getting treated with quite enough respect by some of the powers that be, improving their experience uh, in various ways. Some of the changes I implemented have been maintained and, and expanded. But as far as booking, I tried to, um, to book as diverse a group of performers as possible, meaning people from different backgrounds, different countries, different... Uh, uh, levels of, of experience, different ages, so that so that it wasn't just this repeating pattern of middle-aged white men, which frankly gets tiresome. So I didn't use a quota system in terms of bringing in non-white performers or female performers or 
particularly young or old performers, by just trying to be very aware of diversity. And as a result, the, the people I booked were pretty diverse. And a number of the people I booked during the, that two years uh, have come back later and, and, and are well-liked and so forth. So uh, trying to pick one is hard. I'll tell you one name that comes to mind. There, there's a woman from Sweden named Malin Nielsen, who I think is terrific. And I booked her, and then she wanted to come again and bring a, a partner who does more music than magic. But they had put together a, a combination show that was called something like the Swedish Monkey Orchestra. Or so, I may have the title wrong, but it was something like that. And it was really odd, I mean, in a really good way. It was funny and some really good magic and musical elements and, and very surprising. And, and I said, you can have the whole palace for, for a week, meaning 45 minutes on a stage that is normally three acts. But I said, nope, take it, do it. And, uh, and it was a big success, so that was nice. One of the people I got to book during, during that period, under special circumstances, but I got Paul Patassi to come in. It was one night where he did two shows in the palace by himself. He was brilliant, and that was a thrill. I mean, I was very fond of Paul and, and, and admired him greatly, and so that was nice. I'm trying to think who else... Uh, I got. I mean, I got good people. Uh, I, I, it's hard. The, the, the castle has a lot of slots, more now even than when I was doing it, uh, because they've opened some additional venues or added shows. The close-up room now has, uh, for most of the week, has three different performers. It used to be only two, early and late. Now there's one on, from Thursday through the end of the week. It's now, there's an early, early slot. So, Jack Goldfinger has his hands full because not only are there more people to kind of juggle in the way of booking, but also because we managed to improve the pay and also provide lodging for, for many of our performers, because we rent several apartments across the street, more people than ever want to work the Magic Castle. There used to be an old joke, I'm saving up to afford to work the Magic Castle. Can't make that joke anymore. It may not pay sensationally, but you can go home with a decent profit. I mean, people used to come from uh, other countries, and, and sometimes they'd actually they really would lose money on the deal because by the time you had the transportation and the, uh, uh, the hotel paid for, it, it, that was more than you were getting paid. That's not true anymore. So I, I don't envy Jack uh, the, the amount of stress he has to deal with with just the countless number of magicians who are insisting that he book them right away and, and who kind of lose sight of the fact that booking the club is not only picking good acts, but picking acts that complement each other. A week of booking, you know, who's in one room affects who's in another room. And so it's a very delicate and somewhat complex job to do properly. And I'm frankly quite happy that I'm not doing it anymore. As someone that's had as successful a career as you, I wonder, do you feel almost a responsibility to be as heavily involved in the magic community as you are? Or is it all just done with love? I don't think I feel a responsibility to be heavily involved. I want to. I guess I would say my mentality is that if I'm going to be involved, then I might as well try and do it right, do it, you know. So to try to provide things that I think are useful or helpful in that involvement. So I guess I'm answering your question equivocally in a way that sort of agreeing with one and the other at the same time. 
So I think I've just weaseled out of really answering it. Absolutely fine. Uh, two more questions okay. for you, I promise. Number one, again, as someone that, that's worked for the public a lot and then also for magicians, do you have a favourite and have you got to a point that does your style alter if you're performing for, for the lay audience or magic audience or is it, it very much just the same as it is now? That's an interesting question and the answer is my style really doesn't change. Uh, my my style may may make I make minor adjustments of of pacing or selection of material based on the venue, and so obviously magicians by their existence are one factor in the venue that may affect me in a, in, in small ways. But there's no large scale change in the way I work, and part of that is because I feel at least based on the material I do, this is not a universal statement, but as far as the material I do, I regard my audiences basically to be laymen, and that includes when it's an audience of magicians. I still think they're lay people in that they don't know quite what I'm doing, they don't know what's coming, you know, so why should I carve them out as a separate group? I don't. So there really is almost no change, uh, other than the changes that would be from one venue to another. But no, Carol Fox taught me that years ago. He had some friends who was at a trade show, and, and some of the performers in the trade show, we were sitting having coffee, and Carol said, do some stuff for them. And so I did a few things, and afterwards, later, Carol said to me, I'm disappointed in you. And I said, why? And he said, because you kind of didn't go for it. You, you kind of held back and did the bare bones, but you weren't being you. And I said, well, but... Yeah, but, but that's because they were sort of in the business. They weren't magicians, but they were in the business. And I kind of felt it would seem silly to treat them as if they were lay people. And Carol said, every audience is a lay audience. And that has stuck with me ever since. And finally, we, we've spoken a lot about the past and, and your career and a little bit about the current, I suppose. Yeah. But what does, what does the year look ahead? What's the future look like for you, Max? For me? The interesting thing for me is that I never know. We are now at the start of 2019. And I have gotten used to the fact that when I usually at the end of one year and the beginning of the next, I look at my calendar and there are individual dates blocked off for shows or events or lectures or whatever they may be, but there's a lot of blank space. At, at some time in the past, that might have worried me. It doesn't anymore because it fills in. It's just a lot of stuff happens not... I have some bookings that, have, that were made already the better part of a year ago that, that won't happen for another six months. But there are other bookings that come about with a lead time of two or three months. I've learned to be okay with that. It's good that I'm okay with it because it's going to happen that way regardless. So even if I'm not okay with it, I can't really change that. So, uh, so I've just gotten comfortable with the idea of looking at these vast expanses of empty dates on my calendar and saying, well, something will happen. There, there will be opportunities. And, uh, and, and so I try to remain calm and then at the same time know that uh, there will probably be some interesting adventures and challenges. And, uh, and this has been one of them. Coming to England for two weeks, which I actually did know I was going to do a year ago, has been a lot of fun as I'm winding down this trip. I always enjoy coming to England and uh, this time has been no exception. Super. Max, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cade and Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.